and welcome to a very special Singles Going Steady, where we are going to be talking with a guest today. Um, and this is Fry Gilliard, who is the author of a new book that's just superb, uh, A Hard Brain. And the reason that we thought that, that it would be appropriate for us to bring him to you is because I think we share, the book shares a mission statement sort of with, with our beliefs here at the podcast, which is that music really it, it captures the spirit of a time yes. and, and history as it's going on around you while you're you're seeping in it. And you know, this retrospective of the sixties really captures what it was like to be around in those days and, and how music um you know, it's not a music book. It's a personal history, a memoir, uh, and but music is is so baked into that experience. And we just thought you guys would want to hear um, from this author and, and hear about this book. And you're definitely going to want to put it on your shelves. Yes. So uh, welcome. Good. Thank you. Yes, uh, Fry, you are. Uh, you have written quite a number of books. Is that correct? That, true. I think it's about twenty-five or something like that. Very <laughs> impressive. So. And you're a writer in residence at the University of South Alabama. That's correct. And Down on the Gulf Coast in Mobile. Mobile. Yep. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure how to say Mobile. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. And you uh, spent quite a bit of time at the Charlotte Observer. Is that right? I did. I was there uh-huh. from 1972 to 1990. So mm-hmm. I'm a recovering journalist. You, know. <laughs> so you saw a lot of things. Then, then yeah, that, that it period. was a it was a great time to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I covered the school busing case mm-hmm. in Charlotte during the height of that controversy, yes. and uh, but also got to write about music and mm-hmm. uh, you know a lot of other social issues. And mm-hmm. I've always kind of seen music as. Um, you know, as as kind of you know, to use a cliche, the soundtrack of the time in yes. any given time, but it really is that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, my first book was a book called Watermelon Wine: The Spirit of Country Music, and it was kind of the world according to country music. Nice. Uh, back in the 1970s, when um, when I thought there was a lot of really good country music, mm-hmm. it was a time of Johnny Cash and right. Waylon and Willie and. Willie. and Emmy Lou Harris and mm-hmm. Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn mm-hmm. and you know just so many what what uh, they call now old school country old, music old school country music <laughs> and at the time it was sort of cutting edge new country music you know right. because it, it wasn't Roy Acuff or right. whatever so you know the music evolves but it was uh, it was very much a part of the fabric of those days and so that's how I've always tried to write about music. Now, Adrian, weren't you in Charlotte during the... Uh... I was during... I, I was one of the first students to go through um, the Charlotte Mech system after desegregation. Okay. It was, it was yeah. 1973 when I started okay. there. Okay, yeah, that was so, like the heart of it. Yeah, a, yeah absolutely. And... Um, and actually, the the case was brought by my old boss, Julius Chambers, That's who right. is chancellor here. We're um, mm-hmm. uh, right. recording today at, on the campus of North Carolina Central, and Julius Chambers was was the chancellor right. here, as well as um, the general counsel for uh, NAACP um, Legal Defense Fund, right. and, and bringing that case. Yeah, um, I knew him very well, and and. Uh, 
He just was intimidating. Great, he, he was, but he was so um, he was so smart, you know, oh, yes. that, it, that it made him intimidating. But um, at the same time, I found him really easy to talk to. Um, if he if he sized you up and figured this guy really wants to understand this, yeah. he would go out of his way to be helpful. You know, he wasn't warm and fuzzy, but he was smart as he could be and understood that journalists had a job to do just like lawyers. And so it was a real pleasure um, covering him. And as much as a reporter can be a friend with his subject, mm. I thought of Julius as a, as a really good friend. He was the third uh, head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, after Thurgood Marshall right. and Jack Greenberg. Wow. And so he was, uh, you know, he was th- arguably at that time the number one civil rights lawyer in the country. So North Carolina has that distinguished tradition going for it. And s- certainly um, I knew that when we were when we'd be writing about Mr. Chambers, it was uh, I realized who this guy was, you know, and like you said, it could be a little intimidating. Yeah, and but I think he summed him up very well, which mm. is he was no nonsense and and absolutely um, cut the crap to the you know <laughs> to get to the core. Right. Right. Yes, yeah, right. So which this is good. this book um, that we are talking about that you've just uh, uh, released is called A Hard Rain and the. Uh, the subtitle is America in the 1960s, Our Decade of Hope, Possibility, and Innocence Lost. That's a lot. That's a lot there. Right. right. Um, I mostly read uh, rock biographies. Right. But I do read a lot of history books. And, and I must say, Fred, this is, this is a fabulously written book. It's, it's, it's well, very you. well put together. Um, thank you. It reads so well. The, the chapters are short, but you're not... You're not skimping on any information. Right. You cover a lot of ground. Right. Um, there's baseball. There's music. There's, you know, right. all kinds of things going on. Everything that was going on, the, the space program, right. um, voting rights. Um, you don't make, I, I want to say this the right way, but, you know, the the, the huge events of the, of the time, you know, the assassinations. Right. You deal with them extremely well, but they're not the whole book. Right. As, as, you know, it, right. It's just something. But the, the thing I really, really appreciate about this book is it, it brings a, a personal. You talk about things that affected you growing up in the 60s. Right. right. And that, to me, that really um, gives it a more of a, a reality, more of a readability. And it, when I was... Reading it, I was like, "Oh, could I, I try to imagine myself being in your position? You know, with the war mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all the things going on." And uh, I was hoping you would read a few excerpts. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, okay. The first thing I was hoping you might read is about the time that you, the first time that you saw Dr. Martin Luther King. Okay. Sure. Okay. All right. Go right ahead. And yes. So this is. Um this is a, an anecdote from the book that was probably the pivotal experience of my young life. Uh, mm-hmm. It was seeing Martin Luther King arrested in Birmingham quite by accident. Wow. Um, it was April of 1963. Demonstrations had been going on in Birmingham for a while, um, and then they came to a critical point. And so I'll pick up the narrative at that point. Even so, the demonstrations lagged. 
A Birmingham judge issued an injunction against future protests. Justice King and the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth were running out of money to bail out the marchers in jail. At a strategy session on Good Friday, April 12th, some of King's lieutenants urged him to embark on a national speaking tour, using his considerable gifts as an orator to raise money. King decided instead to go to jail. He hated the idea. He had always suffered from claustrophobia. And once in Montgomery, when he had been arrested, he was sure the police intended to kill him. But he pushed his fears and his phobia aside to lead, he said, by example. How could he ask others to go to jail if he was not willing to go himself? For me, this particular moment in history had a deeply personal dimension. I lived in Mobile, but I was in Birmingham that day on a high school field trip. I had a little idea of what was going on, but as I was leaving the hotel, there was Dr. King, barely three feet from where I was standing. Two Birmingham policemen were shoving him roughly up the sidewalk. I remember thinking that he looked so small, and there seemed to be a sadness in his deep, expressive eyes. At my impressionable age of 16, the moment shattered an illusion that everything was fine, that the racial problems of the South would subside if not for agitators like King. Somehow in this moment, he embodied the truth, a reality white Southerners were seeking to deny. The racial problems in our region ran deep in our hearts and deep in our history. I had no idea what to do with this epiphany, one that was not uncommon in my generation, and though I might have tried to shove it from, a mi- from my mind, I could not. Looking back, I'm certain that it set me on a path toward becoming a writer. Though I could not have put it in words at the time, it was clear to me that this was history, and history had a face, and a face had the power to touch a conscience. Wow. It's so powerful. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was an amazing experience. I would love to say that I suddenly became a uh, knowledgeable convert to the cause of civil rights. <laughs> right. Um, but I was 16, and I was still bewildered by what was going on. But right. but that bewilderment alone sort of propelled me to, uh, to try to figure things out. And mm-hmm. um, the next year, I went off to college uh, in the fall of 64, and I got to Vanderbilt, which is where I went in Nashville, um, the same year that the first class of African-American undergraduates uh, arrived at Vanderbilt. And it was a time of a lot of discussion on campus uh, about the issue of race um, and about uh, the issue of justice in the country. Uh, and for a lot of us who were caught up in all of that, it was a life, life-changing time. Yes. You know, we had a, in some ways, we were cloistered from what was going on in the rest of the world. Uh, it was a safe space to figure out who we were and what we thought. And yet, at the same time, um, we felt very much a part of it. You know, speakers came to campus. Uh, you know, great uh, musicians came to campus from uh, Johnny Cash to Otis Redding. You know, oh, during wow. that time, and uh, so we we felt very much caught in the in the fervor and the fever of the time. Yeah, Dr. King is kind of a recurring fe- figure in the book. Um, 
it's not all about him, but he does seem to appear and 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 come back. I mean, it is the '60s, obviously, right. and and you weave him in very well, I think. And you also, you know, you show his humanity um, and the troubles he had. It was it's almost right. a almost like a biblical story of being in the wilderness. You know, the problems he had in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, you write about that quite a bit, and hey, not really being able to do anything up there. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. He went there in basically in 1966 mm-hmm. um, after having achieved much of what he set out to achieve in the South. He had um, his demonstrations. I think it can fairly be said led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and right. the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and. You know, there was a lot of other pressure in that direction, too, from mm-hmm. young organizers in SNCC and right. other places like that, uh, where it came from. But at the same time, King was certainly a pivotal figure. Yeah. And then he went on to Chicago and tried to take the lessons of the Southern Civil Rights Movement to the North. Mm-hmm. And he got to a place that at first he really did not understand very well. And he made s- some kind of blunders. And... Um, uh, and and at one point, um, you know, I think he felt overwhelmed by the, the the complexity and the depth of the problems in Chicago. Right. And yet, it reminded him of the national nature of America's uh, race problem. Yes. You know, he kind of knew it, but oh. Chicago certainly brought it home to <laughs> him. And so, yeah, he was a. You know, he's a flesh and blood mortal. Right. And right. also, you know, one of the great men of the 20th century. Absolutely. But, a towering figure, no right, doubt. Right. And uh, it, it almost seems like he was, as, as the 60s started to close out and the more problems with the war, he was getting pushed aside a little bit more by the more radical elements in the movement. Right. And you right. write about that quite a bit. Right. Uh-huh. I do. And at the same time that that was happening to him, when he spoke out about the war, mm-hmm. um, even liberal newspapers like the Washington Post um, criticized him mm-hmm. incredibly harshly right. for having the temerity to do that. Right. Uh, when he made a speech in 1967, April 4th, 1967, one year to the day before mm-hmm. he was killed, at Riverside Church in New York, mm-hmm. speaking about the war in Vietnam, right. the Washington Post declared essentially that nobody would ever take Martin Luther King seriously again, and and it implied that nor should they. Yes, um, and that he had spoken out of turn. Essentially, <laughs> it was a preposterous editorial Absolutely. when you look back on yeah. it. The Detroit Free Press was one paper that got what King was trying to do, and there were a few others, but mm-hmm. mostly there was this chorus of boos when right. he delivered a speech that actually, I quote from it at length in mm-hmm. the book because it holds up well yes. in the hindsight of history. I was born by the river in a little tent. Just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know A change gonna come Oh, yes it will The next thing I was wanting you to maybe uh, read a little excerpt from would be the... um 
the time that you had uh, Bobby Kennedy at uh, Vanderbilt. Okay. Right. Um, I think a lot of people today, well, what I want to say is reading your book, you really was a sense of hope and optimism about Bobby Kennedy that I think may be lost on the generation today. Yeah. I could tell the way you, you wrote about him, he was really something people were looking up to and really thinking that things were going to change. Yeah. Is that correct? That, that is correct, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, as the decade sort of darkened mm-hmm. in its mood, right. you know, uh, the war in Vietnam began to hang over it, and all of us began to know people who had been killed in Vietnam. Right. Or, and there were divisions in the country because mm-hmm. of that. Um, and then there had been the assassination of President Kennedy. There had been the assassination of Malcolm X. There mm-hmm. had been riots in the inner cities in a lot of major uh, cities. And so by 1966-67, for some of us, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were kind of the national figures mm-hmm. who embodied our best hopes. Right. And Kennedy, for me, uh, I think this will sound funny to say it, but I'll explain what I mean. He was really important to me because he's a white guy, mm-hmm. and so was I. Right. And because of so many white people behaving badly right. about the race <laughs> issue, uh, the fact that he seemed to get it. You know, and those people were few and far between. They were, Mm -hmm. and so he was an inspiration to me, right? A reminder of the responsibilities that if you had the all the privileges that innately came Mm -hmm. with being white, that you had to do something with that and put Mm -hmm. it to use and roll up your sleeves and care about these things and listen and all those things that that he tried to do. Yeah. So he was pretty uh, he was pretty important uh, mm-hmm. to me and having a chance to meet him briefly mm-hmm. in 1968 was again a seminal mm-hmm. event. Would you would you mind reading that portion of Be the happy book? To. Okay. So Kennedy had delivered a uh, a powerful speech at the University of Kansas uh, in March of 1968 about uh, economic growth in America and how it shouldn't be the only measure of our national greatness. And it had gotten a lot of attention, and then uh, this is what I write about what happened next from my vantage point. Three days later, he came to Vanderbilt, where I was a student and a part of the committee that brought him to campus. We'd already encountered the cynicism of Kennedy's advance team. They demanded that we open only half the arena so that the television cameras could record thousands of people waiting outside, clamoring to get in, or merely to catch a glimpse of the candidate. We refused to do it. We were young and brash, and we took offense at such manipulation. When the advance team threatened to move the speech to a different venue, I remember telling the advance man that might work as long as no reporter asked why we had done it. But if the question arose, we would tell the truth. Kennedy himself knew nothing of this. And on the night of March 21st, an an overflow crowd on the Vanderbilt campus waited impatiently for his arrival. He was two hours late, having been delayed in Alabama, where another huge audience turned out to see him at the same university where George Wallace had stood in the schoolhouse door five years earlier. Reporters who covered Kennedy during those weeks searched for superlatives to describe the, f- the frenzied reception of the crowds. 
Even now, nearly 50 years later, I struggle to describe it. I had never seen anything like it, nor have I since. Even, as the, even at the Nashville airport before his talk, thousands of people were waiting for him, and they surged forward with such force that he was trapped. He climbed to an unsteady perch on an escalator railing and delivered a brief, impromptu speech about the problems of the country and the values that still held Americans together. As soon as he finished, the screaming press of the bodies became more urgent, more intense, and because I was a part of his official welcome, I was walking beside him as he made his way, one deliberate step at a time, through the throng. Even now, as I attempt to understand it, I know it had something to do with his brother, as if he were a reincarnation of hope. But John F. Kennedy's gaiety and elan were nowhere present in the slouched and slender man that was walking among us. For one thing, Robert Kennedy was shy. I saw this clearly after he and I took our seats in the car and waited for the others in his party to join us. I was struck by the odd and unsettling notion that I, as a college senior, had to say something to put the presidential candidate at ease. Feels a little safer in here, I said. Yes, it does, he replied, and we both laughed. It was interesting because he seemed like such a human being, yes. you know, sort of smaller than life in person, and yet, and yet the impact he was making was like a rock star. It was like a rock star. Yes. The only, in fact, I, the only analogous crowd I've ever seen might have been at a Bruce Springsteen concert yes. in New Jersey. Wow! Right? Oh, wow! I mean, New Jersey. It, it was, yeah. uh, you know, it was a, uh, it was that intense. It, yeah. it was. Uh, but in the car, we were riding to the campus, and there were a couple of politicos from Tennessee in the front seat, and they started telling him what uh, he should and should not say that night. And one of them said to him, now listen, he said, when you get to Vanderbilt, don't be talking that race and poverty crap. He said, this is the South, and nobody wants to hear that. And I was just quite startled. I was 21 years old. I was sitting there on the You're back like, seat. We want to hear this. Yes, yes. yeah. <laughs> I was sitting on the back seat, and and uh, Kennedy was in. I was on one side. Kennedy was in the middle, and the astronaut John Glenn was on the other wow. side. And here was this here was this political hack in the front seat telling Bobby Kennedy what to say and not to say. All right. And Kennedy just kind of smiled at the guy, mm-hmm. and then and then he looked at me, and he said, "Do you agree with that?" And, you know, I didn't care what the guy in the front seat said. And so I said, no, I don't agree with that. And I said, you know, we want to hear it, like you, like you just said. Yes. And uh, it's the South, and, and we need to hear it. Yes. And I said, in addition to that, I'm pretty sure it's the same media that's going to be covering you here. Mm-hmm. And if you change your message because it's the South, I'm also pretty sure they're going to notice. <laughs> and Kennedy smiled again and kind of chuckled and looked back at the guy in the front seat and said, I agree with him, gesturing toward me. <laughs> and so I can tell my grandkids that I was an advisor to right, Robert Right, exactly. <laughs> that goes on the but, CV right there. A trusted advisor. But a trusted advisor, yeah. Long-time advisor. And, and, uh, so, but my point in telling the story was that, that uh, he seemed like the real deal offstage as right. well as on stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he made this speech, and you know there were eleven thousand people wow. waiting for him, and uh, um, it was uh, it was a fascinating thing because he was late. 
um, George Hamilton the Fourth of the Grand Ole yeah. Opry. I wanted uh, you to talk about this. Okay. <laughs> well, G- George Hamilton the Fourth was a Grand Ole Opry star in 1968. Right. Um, he had had a big hit in 1963 with a song called Abilene. In 1965 or 66. He had done a whole album of Gordon Lightfoot songs and mm-hmm. kind of introduced Lightfoot to a country audience. Right. In 1967, Hamilton um, had the first radio hit with a Joni Mitchell song, a song called Urge, Urge for, for Going. Going yes. right. and, um, and he he and Earl Scruggs and Johnny Cash were the only people that, I, I think I'm right in this, were the only people who ever played the Newport Folk Festival and the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. And so, um, so we knew Hamilton, who was pretty liberal in his politics, was coming to this speech. And John Siegenthaler, the editor of the Nashville paper who, was, who had brought Kennedy to, to campus, uh, gave me Hamilton's number and said, call him up and, and uh, see if he'll come play his guitar. So I called Hamilton up, and he said, oh, well, that's mighty kind of you to ask me, but um, I'm just a country picker, and this is a white man running for president, and I don't think we can. So I tried to flatter him into it, and he's, no, thank you, I appreciate it, but I don't think I'm the man for that. And so I, I said, uh, being... Uh, desperate uh, and, and young and stupid, I said, well, Mr. Hamilton, if it makes you feel any better, you're all we've got. <laughs> and, and Honesty. He, and he said, oh, well, okay. <laughs> so he did. He came and he sang for two hours. Uh, wow. Because he was late, right? Because mm-hmm. Kennedy was late. So, right. you know, it was a great. Mm-hmm. And we, we sent George Hamilton the fourth a check for $500 for doing this. <laughs> nice. And he sent it back. Oh. And he said, he said, I should be paying you. This wow. was the greatest moment of my life. Wow. So that was the kind of guy he was. What a, what a decent human being, yes. you know, and music person from the 60s. When the sun turns straighter cold and all the trees stand shivering in a naked row, I get the urge for going, but I never seem to go. Did you want to talk about George a little bit? Yeah, I wanted. To, uh, I was enjoying in um, reading in your book. Uh, Race, rock, and religion. I always get my R's mixed up. Right. Uh, and uh, the ar- the article in, in about George Hamilton IV, and it really struck me about how he was, uh, was kind of an iconoclast in uh, in the Opry. And uh, I was reading uh, sour notes at the Opry, and right. you know, the more things change, the more mm-hmm. they stayed the same. And we're right. going through that right now right. with. Um, Little Nas X. Uh, little Nas mm-hmm. X. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, right. With uh, country rap, country trap. Right. And uh, where actually Billboard removed a song that had been number one on the hot country charts. Claiming it wasn't country enough. It wasn't country yeah. enough. Young I mean, African American um, mm-hmm. signed to Columbia Record. It's right. the yeah. most streamed song. Um, and it's a great ever. country song. Yeah. It's yeah. about riding a horse and wearing yeah. a country. Um, yeah. Sounds country to me. And, and you know, 
yeah, I mean, you know, and and it's like the uh, somehow the the marketers and the corporate mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. Uh, in country music, it seems like maybe even worse than anywhere else, want to tell the fans what they like and mm-hmm. what they don't like. They want to the tell them what they can talk about, just they, like yeah, the politicos, right? Right, right absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they did it to the Dixie Chicks. Why not do it to, right. to this guy? It's and the same thing. It's, it's the same thing. I mean, they, the fans had made this song number one. Right. <laughs> and and it was some corporate people somewhere mm-hmm. who decided, no, this can't be. And, yeah. you know, that's just, it's to me, that's just dumb. Yeah, it is. It's just, in, in, I mean, it's it, racist is what yeah, it is. Well, it is know. racist. <laughs> I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached, head is matted black, got the bushes black to match, riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your Porsche, I've been in the valley, you ain't been up off that Porsche, now nah, can't nobody tell me nothing. And, uh, you know, and so our friend George Hamilton, the fourth, who's not, you know, one of the one of the big names in the history of country music, I suppose, in a lot of people's eyes. But he was a guy who uh, resolutely, quietly stood for decent things Mm -hmm. with his music and with his persona Mm -hmm. in the 60s and the 70s. And. you know, uh, did took chances artistically. Yes. You know, recording artists who were not considered country. He and didn't stick to the formula. He no, kept, he no. seemed kind of restless about. He would go on to different things. He was and because, rockabilly to yeah. to balladeer to, right, to, to country rock, star. Yeah, to you know, on to gospel eventually yeah. in his career, but. Um, you know, one of his favorite songs was Forever Young by Bob Dylan, you yeah. know, and he mm-hmm. sang it at most of his mm-hmm. concerts. He didn't have a hit version of it, right. but, you know, <laughs> but it was uh, – so, yeah, he was one of those people. And, of course, there are others better known, you right. know, Cash and, you know, others. <laughs> but, um, but but old George shouldn't be forgotten, and no. I do write about him some yeah. in this book. Wasn't yeah. he from Winston? I he was. Yeah. yeah. It, we, we, he's actually come up in the podcast before yeah. we were talking about – the R.J. Reynolds High School High School That's has right. a music hall of fame, and he's in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, our friends from the DBs, some DBs, and mm-hmm. um, uh, Mitch Easter, mm-hmm. some some folks that are more sort of in our, in our new wavy era. Yeah. Um, uh, but the other thing that was striking me about um, George Hamilton the Fourth is his success. Uh, in the UK and in right. Europe, because that's one of the things he we really He was actually very popular there, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's sort of a recurring theme for us, mm-hmm. is how much we know about our own American music only through the lens, right. the opposite lens, uh-huh. where, yeah. um, you know, the things like Arthur Alexander. Yeah, we're going to talk we, about we him. We came to Arthur bit. Alexander yeah. through the Beatles. Or, yeah. 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 Both Adrian yeah. and I. That's we learned about American music through the Beatles. Yeah, you know. sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, backwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and well, it seems like that, that that it's backwards of the backwards right. with George Hamilton the <laughs> Fourth. Yeah, Send I think absolutely. The, yeah. yeah, I mean he was had his own TV show in the in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the first country artist to perform behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union. Had his own, own TV show mm-hmm. in Canada and New Zealand and right. You know, other places. So he was, yeah, he was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung. May you stay. Do we want to 
want to talk about Arthur Alexander a little? I do. I do. Um, I want to ask you one more quote from the book and then really get into the music end, if if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, There's a a very interesting uh, part of the book where you talk about uh, Lyndon Johnson. Okay. Yeah. And about the night that he came on TV and he said he would not run for president. And right. I was hoping you would you would read that. Uh, okay. Sure. That excerpt. Uh, okay. It seems like uh, you know this is another thing that people um, of our age, Adrian and I, and and younger don't remember the war as well. You mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. how devastating it was to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a passage from 1968. Uh, when Lyndon Johnson announced that he would not run for re-election. Like most Americans, I was watching that night, curious to see if the speech would offer anything new. I had been deeply cynical about Lyndon Johnson, and as I awaited the address with a group of my friends, some of the same students who had invited Robert Kennedy to campus, most of us wondered what fresh lies the president would tell. As far as we were concerned, that had been his pattern with regard to Vietnam. Nevertheless, we found ourselves listening intently as he spoke to us, gravely, calmly, from the flickering black and white of the television screen. Tonight, he said, in the Texas twang we had come to dislike, I have ordered our aircraft and our, and our naval vessels to make no attack on North Vietnam, <clears throat> except in the area north of the demilitarized zone. He pledged that the United States would end its would send its diplomats led by Averill Harriman, an ambassador so respected around the world that his very presence would signal our seriousness, to discuss the means of bringing this ugly war to an end. This had the sound of new and promising policy, and we held our breath as the president continued. With American sons in the field far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time or my personal attention to any partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. After a moment of stunned and disbelieving silence in our cluttered apartment, we began to cheer and dance and embrace each other, astonished by what we had heard. Could it really be that our warmonger president had finally seen the light? There was, of course, a callous oblivion in our euphoria, springing as it did from our hatred of the war and Johnson's years of steady escalation. In the moment, we were ignoring everything else, the tragic story of greatness undone. For here was a deeply flawed politician who had aimed so high on behalf of the country, a son of the New Deal who believed that government could and should work in the service of ordinary people. He had pushed that notion further than any president in our history, building on the legacy of Franklin Roosevelt as well as John Kennedy. It was not just his landmark civil rights legislation or his great society programs as important as those were. With his remarkable legislative agenda, he had erased legal barriers to racial equalities and in the first 10 years of his war on poverty, he had cut the poverty rate by more than 17% to 11% 
its lowest level ever. There were other factors at work, of course, including the economic growth his policies helped to stimulate, but the bottom line was clear. Nor was that all. Environmental protection, consumer protection, and health care, including the bedrock programs of Medicare and Medicaid, all were part of Johnson's mark on the country, the ways in which he made it better, and all were blotted from our short-term memory by the bitter reality of the war. Wow. Yeah, I can remember some uh, some d- debate between my parents. Right. My my father, uh, he was a grad student in philosophy. Uh, on the campus of the University of Illinois, just ridiculing my mother in front of friends about her support for Johnson for the very things that you cite. Because the blinders of of the devastation of the war, you know, people Mm -hmm. that, friends that had been drafted, people that were trying to avoid the draft. I mean, that that time, I mean, it's, it's hard to see how much the, the very things that you point out. Yeah. The, the, probably the historian to me who's written maybe the best about Johnson. I mean, there have been some good ones, but, mm-hmm. um, but Doris Kearns Goodwin yes. um, mm-hmm. has written beautifully about him in mm-hmm. a couple of different books. And, you know, in my assessment of him going back for this book, I was informed a lot by what she wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, uh, he, you know, we were, um, you know, we were, passionately immature in a lot of our Mm -hmm. understandings of things at that point and you know we didn't we were just not able to get past our anger over the war to give him credit for Mm -hmm. the things that he still deserves credit for. Do you feel like he is or was a tragic figure? I do. I do. I think he's he's one of the great American tragedies. Um, You know and, and some of what he you know, I mean, his legacy is mm-hmm. is solid in a lot of ways. I mean, Medicare alone makes it. You know, I mean, what a what a program uh, that you know is such a cornerstone yeah, of the, the whole great society. The whole great society. You know? Yeah. And it was funny when you were listening listing all the accomplishments of his administration. I was just thinking about how they're all being dismantled now. I know. You know. I know. It's uh, it's, it's very sad. Yeah, it's horrifying to me, and mm-hmm. and the. The cliche that his opponents were able to somehow get into the discourse about failed great society programs. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the truth is uh, most of them really didn't fail. No. You know, they, they, uh, they, they cut the reality of poverty by a significant amount in yes. this country. Mm-hmm. And some of them needed to be improved, and maybe there were some that were, you know, mm-hmm. were wasteful and could have been uh, – could have been – uh, cut, but uh, but so many of them had a huge impact and and uh, and and paved the way and prove what government can do right. and, and what government should do. What government should yeah. do, in mm-hmm. my view. And, yes. You know, when in the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan came along and said um, that government is not part of the solution, it is the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it changed the way Americans look at it, and yet, you know, no. Americans want to pave their own roads, right. or, you know. Everybody <laughs> or get their water out of a well. That's right, and, uh, and they, you know, and they certainly want to have health care. I yes. mean, we're learning that today, and yes. so nobody wants to get rid of Medicare if no. they're on it, and mm-hmm. uh, or if they're looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. So Johnson, you know, understood America in that way, and mm-hmm. was a seminal figure in that understanding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Tell me.
Um, let's talk about some music. Yes. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Although um, there are, we, they're so have interwoven. We have we mentioned the um, Spotify playlist? Oh, that is the, the, that's the real lead-in. Yes. Is that uh, as far as we're aware, your your book is the first to have its own accompanying Spotify playlist, which is extremely cool, by the way, too. Well, well, cool. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, the it's, idea for it was from my research assistant Justine Burbank, mm-hmm. who's a was then a student at the University of South Alabama. Now mm-hmm. she's an administrator there. But um, anyway, you know, basically this playlist. Uh, consists of 50 or 60 songs that are talked about in the book. Yes. And uh, music, uh, I think, first appears in Chapter 2, where Mm -hmm. I write about uh, Elvis Presley and Sam Cooke being from uh, growing up 100 or so miles apart in Mississippi, Mm -hmm. one black, one white, Mm -hmm. each liking the music of Mm -hmm. of the other. Uh, You know, Sam Cooke loved country music, and there's a story of Sam Cooke touring with the Everly Brothers and the three of them in the back of the bus <laughs> with Sam Cooke playing Hank Williams on the Everly Brothers guitar, you know. And oh, so wow. it's, a cool, you know, it's very, very cool. Yeah. And then uh, I bet Sam still couldn't have gotten on the country charts, though. <laughs> no, no, he couldn't. And, 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 you know, and he and Ray Charles both cut country songs yeah. right. in 1962. And, right. of course, the country charts wouldn't wouldn't touch them right but um um and then around, but they sold but they sold <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and uh and and they and they understood country music right. you know and, and and gave it real mm-hmm. real uh saying it with real feeling and emotion and all of that and you're And then there was Arthur Alexander, yes. um, who was a, a singer-songwriter from Alabama. Sheffield, uh, Alabama. Sheffield, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote his songs without, not on an instrument. Mm. Uh, he didn't use a guitar to write his songs. He just huh. wrote them in his head wow. and recorded them, uh, little demo versions, and mm-hmm. then the, the white session musicians mm-hmm. in Muscle Shoals right. um, then um, put music to them. But this is a great story of how you have the black artist and the white band. That's right. You know, and, it, and it's just the most amazing music. You know, it's powerful stuff. Yes. And, and Alexander was the trailblazer uh, of that, uh, and then others followed: mm-hmm. Wilson Pickett, Percy Sledge, and others. Mm-hmm. But um, but Arthur Alexander was the first, and his first pretty solid hit. Uh, was called You Better Move On, right. which was later covered by the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. And the Hollies. And the Hollies. Mm-hmm. And then the next uh, record that he made, I think it was the next one, mm-hmm. uh, was a song called Anna mm-hmm. that the Beatles later... Uh, Jackpot. <laughs> you know, they later covered. Yes. And, uh, you know, Paul McCartney once said that... Uh, uh, and I, I'll get the exact quote wrong, but basically he said that when he was growing up, he always aspired to be Arthur Alexander, mm-hmm. uh, which speaks yeah, volumes yes. about yes. Uh, Alexander's prowess mm-hmm. as a songwriter, but also, not incidentally, Paul McCartney's generosity of spirit, I yes. think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he apparently had that in spades. Yes. You know? <laughs> Do <laughs> 
one of the things that struck me when I was looking up about the Beatles first coming to the United States in 1964, I was struck by how soon after the assassination of President Kennedy that yes. was. Mm-hmm. And it was like a relief to everybody. It was such mm-hmm. a relief to everybody. A distraction. And a distraction. Mm-hmm. And a good distraction. Yes. <laughs> and, and McCartney, in one of his interviews, uh, just very thoughtfully... Uh, reflectively hoped that it would serve that purpose. Mm-hmm. Like he was aware mm-hmm. of the grief that yeah. America was feeling and felt it too mm-hmm. and hoped that songs like I Want to Hold Your Hand and you know, Love Me Do mm-hmm. and those kind of things w- in their joyfulness yes. would bring something needed to the country. Some that comfort, a, some healing. Some comfort and healing, yeah. And then there were other, other you know, uh, things that hit their stride that year. The Motown. It yes. was a big year for Motown. Um, but then there were there were some some darker, more poignant songs that year. Um, Nina Simone, yes. who was from oh, North Carolina, yes. uh, <laughs> sang Mississippi Goddamn right. that year, <laughs> and uh, um, and so that was uh, you know as as passionate as protest mm-hmm. gets. Sam I'm surprised Cooke, she could even get that recorded. Yeah, I know. know. And and there were a lot of places, of course, where it was banned. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Sam Cooke uh, uh, recorded uh, A Change Is Gonna Come And uh, and, you know, the story of SNCC organizers in Mississippi, like John Lewis, mm-hmm. listening to that song late at night when they were terrified about right. whether they would survive and drawing drawing strength from Sam yeah. Cooke's, you know. The power of music. The power of music, yes. you know. Um, Johnny Cash that year um, had a country hit with a song called The Ballad of Ira Hayes, mm-hmm. which was about injustice on Indian reservations. Yes. And so, I mean, who talked about that back then? You know? Yeah, right. I know. I know. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. And so music threads its way through mm-hmm. the book as it threaded its way through our lives mm-hmm. in those days. So I think it was amazing to, to read about Al, Arthur Alexander and the recording um, You Better Move On. And then they use some of the proceeds to build the studio, the Muscle Shoals studio. Right. The Stones do the song. And then some years later, the Stones come and record at Muscle Shoals. The yeah. circle goes all the way around. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But who are you to tell who to love? That's up to her. Yes, and the Lord above. You better move on. And of course, the Beatles very famously wanted to record at Stax. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. It never happened, but it was close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So mm-hmm. you know, there are all these uh, mm-hmm. all these cultural exchanges, you know, yeah. that that, uh, that make music richer and mm-hmm. in the end make life richer. I think. Yeah. This is about your book, but uh, I did just finish um, the Peter Gralnick book about Elvis, the first volume. Yeah. Great. Great. Great, great stuff. book. Yeah. yeah. Goralnik writes really well about He's Elvis. He's very good, yeah. You know, He's uh, very good. Uh, well, everything and else. And his Sam Phillips Sam, book yeah, is yeah. very good as yes, well. Sir, yes, absolutely. Uh, Sam was just a, 
a one of a kind. I mean, he he, he wanted to record black music. Absolutely. You know? He and he, he knew a, there was they, he knew there were diamonds out there. You know, that, that's right. And he was a white sharecropper's right. son from that same part of Alabama that uh, yeah. that Arthur Alexander and. Mm-hmm. Not incidentally, W.C. Handy came from, you know, so it's... Uh, something it, in the soil. Something in the soil. <laughs> yes. It's amazing, yeah. The last mention of music in the book uh, is uh, Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. Right. Uh, that closed Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the last... Mm-hmm. He was the last performer at Woodstock. And Were you, well, did you go? I didn't. No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, I wish I had, of course, but I, I was not there. Yeah. But, uh, but I did see uh, Hendrix on the Dick Cavett show right. later mm-hmm. talking about doing the Star of Spain Banner and mm-hmm. his electric guitar mm-hmm. solo of the Star Spangled Banner yes. that he did at Woodstock. So amazing! Uh, it was a powerful. He was just song. from another planet. Uh, he was. I he wish. Was. I wish he would have um, lived longer. I know. I think the music we would have gotten would have just been. Uh, I, it, <laughs> it's, it, it's one of those things. If yeah. Hendrix had lived longer. Mm-hmm. If, Bobby Kennedy had lived right. longer. Right. Martin Luther King had lived longer. I know. You know. There were these towering figures in that time who were, mm-hmm. I think, forces of, of good in so many ways. have to talk about um, Mr. Dillon. Absolutely. The, uh, the, the title of your book, his song, A Hard Rain. Right. Um, it, right. is, is, that, is that someone that you were a really big fan of? I was. Yeah. Um, you, it was hard not to be. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he came on the scene in the early 60s. Uh, I first learned about him with Joan Baez recording right. some of his songs. Uh, just the other night, I saw Joan Baez on her farewell tour. Mm-hmm. She came through Mobile, and she sang, I think, five Dylan songs. That, How was she? In that kind of, she was fantastic. Yes. Um, her voice is not as high and right. pure and clear as it used to be, but I thought, if anything... You get that she's lived an even, in. She's an even better singer mm-hmm. because she has to work around her limitations now, and she does it in a way that... that Involves almost more feeling than oh. when she could just mm-hmm. sail through on the mm-hmm. vocal brilliance of that instrument that she was blessed with. I love in the book when you write about seeing her. I, I could practically see the little hearts around her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can tell you were, you were very taken with I her. I was very taken with her. <laughs> She's and, and, a beautiful, you know, beautiful uh, amazing woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yes. But that's how I first learned about Dylan, and then mm-hmm. I started listening to mm-hmm. to Dylan himself. and. Right. Um, and I was struggling for a title for the book. Yes. I, um, for t- two years into the three years of writing, it didn't have a title. Mm. And I had, I had thought about, you know, even other Dylan songs, the right. times they are changing mm-hmm. or something. Sure. But it seemed too cliched. Yeah, and blowing was, in the wind. Know, blowing in the mm-hmm. wind, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then I just happened to hear mm-hmm. A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. And yeah. it was like, you know, oh. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's so poetic yes. and it's so metaphorical, and I mean, he uses like biblical imagery all does. the time. He does. You know, it's it's you just can't smooth your way through these songs. You've got to really think about them. No. Yeah, uh, as as Baez said the other night, he was the best. Mm-hmm. That, that's a that's a quote mm-hmm. from her. He was the best. I always had a uh, personally. I always had 
a little bit of trouble getting into Dylan. Of course, one of the first songs we ever learned was a Dylan song. Right, right. <laughs> was a Subterranean Homesick Blues. Right. Uh, right. But um, I saw the Pennemaker film, Pennemaker mm-hmm. film, right. of him doing the oh. 65 tour, Don't Look Back. Oh, yeah. That's and uh, he is indispensable. Riveting. I mean, he is yeah. just, it's yeah. like he is all the rock stars and the literary star and the, you know. Right. Right. And when you, when you see that, you get it. You're like, yeah. oh, I see. Yeah. I see what you you were seeing and you were hearing. You know, this is a guy that just commands respect. And yeah, it was know. just so different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, yeah. the he was aiming so high poetically. Yes. And his sound seemed to me to be so distinctive musically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it just it just grabbed your attention. Mm-hmm. And then he kept. You know, some people thought almost perversely refusing to fall into the patterns that we became accustomed to, right. you know. And so when he first used electrical instruments, mm-hmm. you know, right. everybody right. jumped down. It was a sacrilege. Yeah, yes. sacrilege, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but, you know, he, he knew better than, mm-hmm. than his critics, and yes. he just... He just kept going. So, you know, and some of his stuff, I have to admit, I like better than others. Yeah. But that doesn't detract from the mm-hmm. fact that, for me, he was just iconic. Mm-hmm. And for his generation, yeah. he was iconic. I and I, I see that watching that movie because it, the younger people have heard so many bad Dylans, bad versions of Dylan, you know. Right, right. by others but, and, and right. even by Dylan himself. Yeah, and, maybe and sometimes, that, yeah. But, I mean, w- could you imagine seeing Dylan in 64 or 65 and it would just be like a bomb going off, yeah. you know? It would yeah. just be like you would blow your the top of your head, you know? There was nothing like that, yeah. you know? That's, uh, I think that's really yeah. how it hit people, mm-hmm. yeah. So. I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard it's a hard rain you're gonna fall. Well, one of the things I wanted to make sure that we mentioned mm-hmm. is um, we've set up a tiny Earl um, yes. to order the book because you, you, it's indispensable. You really need to get this book. And, yes. um, so we'll have that up on mm-hmm. the website, and you mm-hmm. can also just go to tinyearl.com slash nccu a hard rain and, and you know support the book you, yes. you'll love it you'll yeah, it's a mm. great gift it really um, is and for those who remember those who were maybe a little too uh, mm-hmm. polluted to remember yeah. the 60s and there, and for those of uh, uh, us that uh, yeah. maybe were not old enough um, yeah. to, to remember it firsthand right um, that I, it is a great great book yeah this is a book you really you really need to get um, I'm, I'm really I can't tell you how impressed I am with that. Well, thank now, you. now I understand. You said it took you three years to to write it. I could, yeah, it was. I could uh, it was. You know, it was the, mm-hmm. certainly for me. It was, and this is a relative judgment, but mm-hmm. for me, it was the most ambitious thing I've ever attempted mm-hmm. to do. But it was a subject that I just was so, um, mm-hmm. you know, so central to 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 who I am, and I yeah. realized that was true of a lot of people. 
It's really about your life. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, really in a is. lot of ways. In, in a lot yeah. of ways, it is. Mm-hmm. But but more than that as mm-hmm. well, thankfully. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, thank you for, for mm-hmm. the things you said about it, mm-hmm. for giving me a mm-hmm. chance to talk about it, and particularly through the lens of music, mm-hmm. because that's one way to look at these times, yeah. and it uh, is a very important one to me. The last thing I want to ask you about is uh, 1968, probably one of the, the worst years of the 60s. And uh, you, you do talk about, um, I, I don't think people can really realize how big a song it was, the Beatles with Hey Jude and Revolution. Right. I mean, it was the number one song in the world, right? Right, right. A seven minute and 11 second song. Right, right. Uh, Which started for the most tender and personal mm-hmm. of reasons. Right. You know, Paul McCartney mm-hmm. was worried about Julian Lennon, mm-hmm. uh, and the song, as he originally wrote it, was "Hey Jules." Right. Uh, and he went out to to see Julian and his mother uh, after John Lennon and his, uh, yeah had gotten um, divorced, and mm-hmm. um, and so um, and so they. Um, on his way uh, back, I guess, or maybe it was on his way out there even, he was thinking about this. You know, hey, Jules, don't make it bad. You know, mm-hmm. take a sad song and make it better. Um, and and then they started into it in the studio, and I can't re- even remember all the details of production, mm-hmm. but I write about them in the right. book. Mm-hmm. And they were extraordinary. I mean, yes. the things people had just didn't do. You yeah, know? It, was the, so, it was their first recording on an eight-track. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I know so, that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. And the fact that it was a seven-minute song that yes. they wanted to put on the radio, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, they figured out the maximum amount of time they could put on a forty-five. Wow. And that wow. was that was it to the second. Wow. <laughs> well, that is so cool. That is so cool. Yeah. And then the B side was Revolution mm-hmm. that John Lennon wrote, right? And, and uh, you know, and and uh, it was uh, you know a commentary on that sense of. Uh, you know, and kind of a, a at least a mildly skeptical commentary yes. about right. the 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 sort of uh, wave of revolution that mm-hmm. was you know sweeping the world. Not that he was opposed to it, right. but at the same time, it has that Lenin cynicism to yes, it. Yes, yeah. it does. Yeah, the line and, about Chairman Mao and uh-huh. you know. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's uh, you know again, uh, you know they were um, they were. They were every bit as good mm-hmm. as people thought they were. And right. it was it a song that was just on the radio. Yeah, all we the were time? wondering about the ubiquity, the, like mm-hmm. everywhere you, you know, like now we hear in, in stores and stuff. Yeah. But like yeah. everywhere yeah. you went, you heard. Yeah, you heard one or I mean, I think both got mm-hmm. airplay. They did, right. certainly did where yeah. I was, mm-hmm. and and um, so you heard one or the other all mm-hmm. the time. Right. But somehow you didn't get tired of them because mm-hmm. um, you know there was just something so unbelievably fresh particularly about yeah. hey jude but but revolution was so mm-hmm. pointed in its commentary yes. um, mm-hmm. and so yeah amazing stuff okay well we well, go well, ahead I, I, we wanted to give you a chance of because uh, i know you've done a lot of of interviews um over your career and regarding this book, is there anything that you wish someone had asked somebody that, that had had given you an opportunity to talk about something? What's been un what what leaf has been unturned? Well, you know that's a really um, that's a really fun question, and I think the the main answer is that I, I have not always been asked about the music 
because so much of it is about social movements whether right. it was, in history uh, in history and whether it was the the politics of civil rights mm-hmm. or whether it was the black power movement or mm-hmm. whether it was the women's movement or the environmental movement all of those things or the war or the protests against the war i mean you can make a whole book easily out of all of that and mm-hmm. and uh but for me, the way I encountered the decade involved music to such a large degree right. um, that the chance to talk about it. And, and there are pieces of music that we haven't talked about. Yes. You know, There's a uh, lot of music in the book. Right. I mean, Janis Joplin we haven't mm-hmm. talked about. Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, you interviewed her, music. right? I did, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the birds. Um, so, um, you know, or the, the I love little ironic uh, sort of mind-boggling stats, like the fact that in 1966, the most popular song in America was not uh, the Beach Boys' "Good Vibrations." It was Staff Sergeant Barry Sanders' right. "Ballad of the Green, Green Berets." Yes, you know? <laughs> um, I mean that's so funny, you know, that that yeah. would be the case. But again, it's music in the moment, right? Yes. And that's one of the themes of y'all's podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just what hit mm-hmm. the country in the moment and yeah. you know a year later it wouldn't have gotten on the radio probably exactly. but uh, so anyway just one of the funny little things but again a decade so rich in music um, and and such a reminder for later decades of the role that music plays in our lives yes rolling stone as a as a as a publication started in that decade, you know, and so anyway, it was uh, it was just so much fun being able to weave that into the book. Good. Well, it is a great book. Uh, we've been speaking today, um, our special podcast with Fry Gilliard, uh, magnificent author. His book is called A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s, Our Decade of Hope, Possibility and Innocence Lost. We both couldn't recommend it more. Yes, and and um, just scratching the surface here today and right. what we were able to talk about. Right. Thanks, guys. Okay, thank you. Fry. Thank you so much. Okay. about the artists and recordings we just talked about, visit our website at zubrecords.com and click on the Singles Going Steady icon. You'll also find links to the persons, places, and things we recommend, and much more. You can find episodes of Singles Going Steady on our website or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Singles Going Steady is brought to you by the power and majesty of Zub Records. Zub Records. Smart sounds for sharp people.
and love that way.